chapter 15, and you'll find it on page 15. The Lord's Covenant with Abraham. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus. And Abraham said, You give me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. When the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, But a son whose your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky, and count the stars, If indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, So shall your offering be. Offspring be, sorry. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with a great possession, possessions. Possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the Wadi of Egypt, the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenazites, Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites and Jebusites and every other sites that you can imagine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, please, God. Just. I'm not quite sure where to stand so you can all see me. Am I better here or back here? What do you think? Okay. Can you all hear me? If anybody can't hear me, there's a script on the seat next to Alan. Please just grab it at any time. Let's pray. Father, help 
the journey tonight from our heads to our hearts that nothing we can do will make you love us less and nothing we can do will make you love us more. Take our eyes off ourselves and onto you and your faithfulness so that we can live lives that show we love you. Amen. Okay, so it's the first Sunday in Advent today when we remember, as good Anglicans, the patriarchs, the fathers of our faith. And we begin our time of watching and waiting um, as Christmas approaches. So it's very fitting tonight that we should have come to another one in our series of Abraham. And we're joining his story at a point uh, right in the middle of a very, very, very long wait for Abraham. Abraham waited 14 years in total to see God um, do what he had promised. Here's where we're going tonight. Uh, Please have your passage that we've just read open in front of you. Um, We'll be flicking around a little bit, but the other verses that we go to will be on the screen um, behind me. And uh, here's where we'll be going. It's page 15. Firstly, we'll be looking at the God who makes promises and the God who makes covenants. Then we'll briefly look at ourselves and we'll talk about why this narrative is about us and we'll talk about why this narrative is not about us. Always good to have a bit of contradiction in there somewhere, isn't it? Um, I've been uh, in a bit of a quandary all day. I've had two different forms of what I was going to say to you tonight um, running um, alongside one another. And the reason for that is this. Um, Learning about the faithfulness of God and the language for that in Scripture changed my life. And it's what in academic circles you call kill your darlings, murder your darlings. If there's something you really like, get rid of it. (laughs) Um, And I've been tempted to do that, but... um, I'm not, so (laughs) please bear with me that I haven't quite managed to murder my darlings because I want to talk a little bit about um, the concept of covenant and how it relates to Abraham and to us within the narrative that that we've got. But first, the God who makes promises. Um, I love this first bit of this passage because we see this fantastic dialogue between God and Abraham. If you remember a few weeks ago um, when Ivan spoke to you, I wasn't here then, um, we looked at Abraham and we saw God's promise to bless the whole world through him. And in this chapter, God is reassuring Abraham of his faithfulness. But Abraham isn't so sure. You see, he's actually waited long enough and he's getting a little bit discouraged. So, God gets him to lift his gaze from his circumstances up. He gets him to look at the heavens where he will see millions and millions of stars. And God makes a fairly outrageous promise to him that his descendants will be that numerous. And so we see this massive turnaround in verse 6, don't we, where it says, Abraham trusted God. And God credited that to him as righteousness. This encounter with God moves him from looking at the hopelessness of his own circumstances and to trust in the faithfulness of God. Throughout the whole of Genesis um, and the family narratives that we look at, we see um, God um, 
as a God who makes promises. And I think we see two responses going on. Um, Occasionally, we see uh, God's promises fulfilled, and we see the people celebrating that. But most of the time, the people are waiting, and they are hoping. Abraham waits for 14 years for that promised son. The people wait in hope, in joy, despair, in error, and in expectation. And I think that we also see two things about God when he makes promises. And we see this in Genesis, and we see it throughout the whole of Scripture as well. Um, Firstly, we see God um, passing on those promises to subsequent generations. And we also see God making new promises. So at first he promises that he's going to bless the world through Abraham. And then today in chapter 15, we see God saying, no, you are actually going to have a child yourself. He's clarifying and detailing the promises. Um, It's what Galatians 3 chapter 8 refers to when uh, Paul says that God announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. It's interesting, isn't it, that as it goes on, um, God's promises aren't just kind of specific to this guy, Abraham. He widens those promises, and he talks about promises that will be fulfilled in, in sort of messianic ways through Jesus, as we found out. But he also talks about um, promises outside of history. God will be faithful beyond human history. Um, there's a lovely Uh, verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the Amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. Do you know what though? Um, I think there's a bit kind of an incongruity sometimes between the promises of God and our experience of life. I was talking to um, Trevor yesterday, and we were talking about the frustrations of waiting for God to act, how very, very difficult life can be for some people, um, and how disappointed we can feel that God isn't showing up. And we start to question the promises of God. I think that's what Abraham's doing in the first bit of this chapter when he's saying, what can you possibly do for me? I haven't got a son. What are you on about? But you know what? It's the promises of God, not our current circumstances, which define reality. I wonder what your current circumstances are like at the moment because God is inviting us, along with Abraham, to embrace a version of reality which is about his faithfulness, not about our circumstances. Now, I think as a species, we're not actually very good at getting our heads around that, are we? In Genesis, we see Eve confronted by a snake who says, did God really say? And ever since then, our species has seemed particularly prone to this, to questioning whether or not God can be trusted. Is God for us? Can I trust what God says to me? Surely I know best. Surely I know what's right for me, not God. Surely I can influence the terms on which God will act. I don't know if any of you are familiar with uh, 12-step programs, but in that, there's a concept called the voice. 
And the voice is this thing in your head which pretends to be you. And the voice will say, oh, you really need a drink. Go on. You deserve it. Now, we might call that the serpent. I don't know. But the thing about the voice is, you've got to take charge of it and you've got to tell it some kind of reality. So it's a case of, no, I do not need a drink. You need a drink. I don't drink anymore. So get lost is basically how you deal with the voice. Now, (laughs) perhaps that's something we need to learn. We need to override the voice in our heads that tells us that God is not going to be faithful to his promises, that God doesn't care, that God isn't there for me. Or why would I still be waiting for him to act? That's a lie. You need to override that with the truth of the gospel. All the promises of God are sure. So get lost, snake. Your time is short. That brings me on to uh, God who makes covenants. Um, we were originally going to look at the first six verses of this chapter. Um, and uh, I didn't just get the rest of the chapter read because I thought it would be a laugh to have um, Tim read the last verse. <laughs> Although it was quite funny. <laughs> but um, the, the thing about this is, right, Abraham is doubting whether or not God will act. How am I going to know, he says. And you'd think, wouldn't you, that God would respond by saying, oh, for goodness sake, you human beings, when are you going to learn to trust me? This is ridiculous. But he doesn't. He makes a covenant. Now, I suppose you could say that a promise of God is like the promise to marry someone when you're engaged. And a covenant is like a marriage. A covenant was a common thing in the ancient Near East, and it set the um, foundations for a relationship. It was a solemn kind of pledge made by one party to another. Now, in the Bible, we see two sorts of covenant. There are equal covenants, which offer really good deals for both sides. It's a covenant of equals. And then there are unequal covenants, for example, where a... um, a victorious ruler might say to the people he's just uh, beaten in war, well, I'm not going to kill you, but you've got to serve me. It's a very unequal thing. I think what's amazing about this covenant in chapter 15 is God does not make any demands on Abraham. It is a covenant of equals. Do you know, I wonder if some of us suspect that God is in the business of unequal covenants. And I know what I'm saying is preposterous because actually grace is that God is making a covenant of equals with us. Do we think the gospel is essentially like this? Is God saying, if you agree to serve me for the rest of your life, if you agree to give up having fun, if you give a chunk of your income and come to church every week, then I agree not to kill you. I'll give you a post-mortem get out of hell card. Is that what the gospel is? Brothers and sisters, just look at the God who covenants. He's a God of grace. He longs to bless us in spite of our failings. He took that covenant as far as it could possibly go. And that's what we're celebrating tonight when we share the bread and the wine. It was a covenant in which he shed his blood because he loved you. Would you dare to believe that God is making a covenant of equals with us? That he chooses to give us a good deal and all he wants is our love in return that's a covenant of grace it's not a contract God's saying I love you I've redeemed you therefore 
keep my commandments. He's not saying, if you keep my commandments, I might love you. But he's saying, if you love me, you want to please me. Take, for example, marriage. Now, marriage is a two-sided covenant into which man and woman, ideally, will freely enter. I know that's sometimes not the case uh, with forced marriages. But anyway, imagine that the man and the woman do certain things that really wind each other up. Can you imagine that? (laughs) For example, can you imagine that one party in the marriage is really irritated when the loose seat is left either up or down? Can you imagine that? Now, you take your pick which one of those you can relate to. Now, you might choose to position the loose seat in a manner which pleases your spouse. But that behavior does not make you married. It's an act of love to please the other person. It may happen that one partner might think, well, I can probably get away with leaving the loose seat how I like it. But would that mean the marriage contract was broken? Would it? Of course it wouldn't. That would just be stupid, wouldn't it? The covenant of marriage is what makes you married. It's not what you do with the loose seat. A silly point, but similarly, it's a unilateral act of love on God's part to reveal himself to us and to make promises to us that puts us in a covenant relationship with him. Our limitations in our love towards him do not invalidate that covenant. And as within a marriage, indeed any relationship, love always does bring behavioral obligations. I'm not saying it doesn't. It needs a response. But the obligations of love are not the conditions of love. A covenant of grace is not a contract. And that's why I want to bring us on to uh, my final bits that tonight, that it's about you. You see, Abraham's relationship with God becomes a covenant of blessing for the whole earth. Now, short range, that means direction and purpose for Abraham and his immediate family. Long range, through one nation, all people everywhere through all time will be blessed. So that is about you. Covenant with Israel is God's covenant with the whole of humanity. That's what we're celebrating in the new covenant uh, at communion tonight. Look at Galatians 3 verse 8 again. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. Now, I don't know which of those people groups you identify with. For most of us, I'm assuming it's Gentile. Um, But, you know, God always intended to bless you. He always intended that you would be part of his rescue plan. And that means, church, as a community set apart for the Lord Jesus, who've been blessed by him, you need to be a blessing. I wonder in what ways you are being a blessing to the people you come into touch with. Um, certainly as a church, um, I can see that blessing being lived out through things like coffee in the living room, where we are welcoming the lonely, and through the uh, space community, which brings hope through Jesus to teenagers in our community. These are ways in which we are being the blessing that God called us to be. This covenant is about you, and I'd like to think about where you fit into that. How are you going to bless the people you come into contact with? But you know what? There's, there's 
an extent to which it's actually not about you. Okay, now this is important, okay? Faith is not an intellectual decision you've come to which can be replaced by another opinion. That's not faith. It's not a deal maker that you're bringing to the table to get into God's good books. Faith is a relationship. It's concerned with God and the work of his free love. Look at Hebrews 10:11. Sarah, who was past the childbearing age, was unable to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made promise. She considered him faithful who had made the promise. I wonder why Sarah trusted God. We could say she didn't. I mean, Sarah and Abraham did make a bit of a mess of things, didn't they? Um, But, you know, perhaps it was something to do with the same way that when you went to bed last night, you expected to wake up this morning and it would be light. We believe that because it's something that has always happened to us. It's something we experience and therefore we take on trust. Where human faithfulness to God exists, it always has its basis in the faithfulness of God. We may have our doubts or our struggles. Um, as Karl Barth said, we ought not to take our own belief, unbelief too seriously. I'm going to say that again, right? You ought not to take your unbelief too seriously. It's about God being the one who's supremely faithful. We are the weakest link in the chain. We are not as holy as we think. There's a man crossing a frozen lake in Canada when he heard the ice crack and terrified, so the story goes, he lay down and he spread out his weight on the ice to try and avoid falling through and he crept forward bit by bit and he was about halfway across the lake when he heard a noise. A team of horses was charging across the lake dragging behind them tons and tons of timber. And the team of horses and the timber got safely to the other side. The point is this. It wasn't about (laughs) the quality of their faith in the ice. One of them trusted it. One of them didn't. It wasn't about the quality of their faith. It was about the quality of the ice. It was strong enough to hold them all up. What they actually thought was secondary. Now here's the thing, right? Jesus Christ and the gospel are really, really, really thick ice. If I can use that analogy. Jesus Christ is holding you and the whole universe, even in your moments of doubt. So really, it's not so much your response to Jesus as his response to you. Philippians 3.12 says this, I take hold of what Christ took hold of for me. I take what Christ did for me. It casts us back onto Jesus where we participate in him and in his faithfulness. It's about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to death for you. So in summary, um, God is a God who makes promises. Are there issues for you where you need to trust him over your circumstances? 
What are you waiting for this Advent? How are you hoping that God will meet you? God is a God who covenants. Would you dare to believe he accepts you on the basis of an equal covenant of lavish grace? Or do you feel the need to hold some of the cards? And where is God's covenant about you? What's he asking you to do to bless your community or those around you? And can you concede it's not about you? Are you taking your own doubts too seriously? Abraham trusted God, the passage says, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Sarah trusted the one who is faithful. Can you get your head and your heart around the fact that Jesus Christ is really, really thick ice? Rather than pray now and kind of round this off and then move on to the next bit of the service, rather than do that, I'd like you to hold your response to those questions I've just asked you and take them with you as we reenact and participate in the faithfulness of Christ tonight as we come to the Lord's table. And let's resolve that we're going to trust in his faithfulness as we share together.